welcome to K2. It's great to be with you this morning. Fun song there in the beginning. I, I will follow you anywhere you go. I will follow you down, but not that far. Anywhere, anywhere you go, but just not that far. That uh, kind of summarizes my spiritual journey for a long time. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit, about my defining moments. I want to talk about defining moments in general a little bit. There's defining moments uh, in history, aren't there? And uh, one thing I love to do before messages is Google the topic of the message I'm going to talk about and see what Google spits out. And as we all know, the Internet has all kinds of entertaining, very credible uh, information out there. Right? And so I found um, a, a top 10 list of defining moments of this last decade, the first decade of the 24 first century, right? So from 2000 till 2010. So this is what the, these people came up with, um, the top 10 list of defining moments in different aspects of our life and culture. Okay? Number 10 is literature. They said the, the, most before, the defining moment in literature in the last 10 years was the completion of the Harry Potter series. Okay? And, and a defining moment in its very nature defines things and it changes everything from then on, right? That's what a defining moment does. And that's actually true in literature. I mean, when ever before have teenagers or young kids lined up for hours to buy a book at midnight so that they can read it and have it done by the morning? Well, I mean, it did change things. So I, I buy that one. Um, number nine, uh, television. They say what, the defining moment in television in the last 10 years was the appearance of reality TV. And boy, is that, is that true? They, it completely changed my habits of what I record on DVR and whatnot. <laughs> um, it, it definitely has changed the whole TV culture. Number eight on their list was movies. And their defining moment in movies in the last 10 years was uh, Slumdog Millionaire. Anybody saw, saw that movie? Great movie. I don't know if it changed everything, but it was a good movie. Number seven is sports. Now, I think sports should be way higher on that list of defining moments. It's only number seven, but their defining sports moment of the last decade was the, the Boston Red Sox winning the World Series in 2004. I don't know. I don't know. That's definitely, there's a... Really? Really? Any Yankee fans here? Ooh. Oh, ooh. Okay, all right. Let's move on. Number six. <laughs> Music, the defining moment in music in the last 10 years, according to them, and again, I think I would have to wholeheartedly agree, is the introduction of iPods in 2001. Changed the music industry entirely. Anybody remember actually going into a store and buying a record <laughs> or a CD? Anybody with me? Records? Who still bought records? <laughs> yes. Or vinyls or whatever they're called now. So the iPod changed that. Number five on their list category is technology, and they say Facebook changed technology. And not just technology, it really changed how we interact. Right? All of you know at all times what I'm doing and where I'm at, right? <laughs> no? Anyway, most of you do. Facebook in 2004. Fourth on the list of defining moments in the last 10 years is, is the economy. And interestingly enough, it's not the economic crash that they picked as the most defining moment, but the introduction of the euro as a currency in Europe in 2002. And I was there, trust me, changed everything, especially prices went up like crazy. Um, number three, and I'm surprised this isn't number one, but number three, the categories in the national affairs was September 11th. 
And September 11th did change everything, didn't it? It changed so much politically and, and the way how we feel about safety and security. I mean, it changed so many things. It changed the airline industry. I mean, tons of stuff. A very defining moment. Number two for them was the tsunami in 2004 in, in the Indian Ocean. And it changed everything in terms of what we thought could happen, doesn't it? I mean, who would have thought something like that? could ever happen. And then number one on their list in the category of politics, and please, we don't need, need to know whether you approve or not, was the election of Barack Obama as president of the United States in 2008 and, and all, that, the, all the change that that brought with it, a defining moment in politics. And this is just the last 10 years. It's pretty clear isn't it, that there is, excuse me, <laughs> defining moments in history. There's defining moments during certain eras, and then there is defining moments in our individual lives on there. One um, movie that came to mind when I thought about this message and, and defining moments and, and somebody describing a very defining moment in a movie is the movie Signs. Anybody seen the movie Signs with Mel Gibson and Jork and Phoenix? Great movie. Uh, these aliens are invading and everything is it's in chaos. And Mel Gibson in this movie is the older brother of Joaquin Phoenix. And they talk about whether they believe in, in destiny and purpose and God. And Mel Gibson clearly doesn't in his character in this movie and is very disillusioned. And, but his younger brother, who's played by Joaquin Phoenix, says, oh, yeah, I do. And so he gives the account of his defining moment when he knew God was real. And he, he tells his brother about this party he was at and this girl that he was kind of pursuing. And at some point they're on a couch and they're just about to get ready to make out with each other when he realizes he has a chewing gum in his mouth. And, and he turns away and takes the chewing gum out. And by the time he turns back, she has thrown up all over herself. And he said, that's when I knew there is a God. <laughs> Had there not been a chewing gum in my mouth... It would have gotten messy. Now, I hope that if you have had a spiritually defining moment, that it was more substantial and deep than that. Uh, I know mine was. And I want to tell you about my story this morning, my defining moment spiritually, the moment that changed everything from then on forward. So I just want to tell you a little bit about my, my life, my upbringing. Obviously, you know, I grew up in Germany, and both of my parents were very devoted Christians, very devoted followers of Jesus. They loved Jesus. They spoke about him in a home. My father, actually, he was an architect and had his own business, but he also was a lay pastor at a church and, and did all kinds of stuff. Um, very devoted, both of my parents. And actually... Both of my, my sets of grandparents also had been followers of Jesus and had raised my parents in that. And all of my uncles and aunts went to church. We all went to the same church together. And this is highly unusual in Germany, where only about 2% of the population actually go to church. That was very, very unusual. And the church we went to was even more unusual, especially if you come here and you're used to K2 and the way we do things here and the way we express uh, ourselves. The church that I grew up in was what is, was called a brethren church. It was run by, by a bunch of men, the br brothers. Um, and when you came into the auditorium, there, was, there were two sections, one for women and one for men. And the women would cover their, their head when they would uh, sit down. They would always wear a head covering. The women weren't allowed to say or do anything. Um, men, the men ran the place. They were allowed to speak out loud and pray and read the Bible out loud and, and teach. Uh, it was a very interesting setting. Now, 
Having said all that, they, they, they love Jesus. They just have a different interpretation of, of what, what worship looks like and what church looks like than, than we would. But it was a really odd place uh, to grow up going to church. And trust me, now when I go back, now that I'm a pastor at K2, and the way we do things here, and I go back and go to church with my mom, it's odd. I just got to tell you that. It's a little weird for me. Um, but that's where I grew up. And part of, of growing up in this setting, it was a rather strict religious setting, if I could say so. And part of what came with it was that I grew up with the impression that, that faith meant keeping a certain set of rules, doing certain things that were expected, and then not doing other things that, that were not expected. There was what we call a very legalistic uh, approach to things, and, and that was really ingrained in me. Um, to in terms of my my feeling of acceptance by God had a lot to do with meeting the expectations of the church and of the people and doing the right things and not doing the things that were not expected. And then when I was um, 11 years old, so I, my, the first 11 years, I grew up in this small town. All my family was there. I was related to half the town. There's a lot more Kokoshites out there. I know that's hard to believe, but there's a bunch. And so I grew up in this, in this very protected setting. And then when I was 11, my parents felt that God was leading them to the south of Germany, about six hours away from, from where all my family was and where I grew up. And six hours of distance in Europe is like a world away. I mean, that's, that's literally a the other end of the country. And, um, and so it was really, really hard move to move away from this setting where I'm surrounded by, by relatives and family um, to go to a setting where we knew nobody. And we moved into a tiny little village that was 99.9% Catholic, and we weren't. And it was really hard just breaking into that community and being accepted. And in that part of Germany, they spoke a very different uh, dialect, and the way I spoke was very funny to them, apparently. Um, I thought theirs was funny, but I was in the minority, so I got made fun of and and um, it was a really really hard time for me as a as a kid and um, again I was the only church going kid not just in my grade but in the whole school and then on top of that my parents had this huge not just it wasn't a bumper sticker it was like across the whole uh, back window of our car and it said in big fat bold letters the only hope for you Jesus, question mark, no, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. And every morning I was dropped at school with that car. <laughs> you can't believe I never heard the end of it, seriously. But they wouldn't take it off. Every time my brother and I peeled it off, a new one appeared on the car. <laughs> so all I had to say, it was, it was really hard. And what became very important to me at that time, and I think it really shaped a lot of me, was a deep, deep need for acceptance and being willing to do almost anything to be accepted and acknowledged uh, into that community. And the way that, that I did that and that worked best for me was through soccer and through relationships. But soccer really became my number one pursuit. I was good at it, and that, that always got me in certain circles. And, but I developed this, this need for approval that from people and, and through athletics. Now, this whole time, you know, I was going to church. I, I, I can't remember a time in life. There wasn't a time in my family's life, in my life, when I wasn't taken or dragged to church um, or, or went. I mean, there, isn't, there hasn't been a Sunday pretty much in my life where I haven't been to church, except very few. And so I knew all the right things. I knew all the stories. I, I knew all the questions and had all the answers, I thought. And, 
Um, I got involved early. I got involved in our youth group and helped start leading that. I, I helped to teach Sunday school on Sunday mornings. And I was sincere about that. There was never a time, really, in my life that I can remember where I, I doubted that there was a God. Uh, never a time where I really doubted that, that the God described in the Bible was real and, and that he loved me and that I needed forgiveness and, and all of that. I, the, I can't really remember a time of not believing it. There were times when I, when I started to question that, but, but I always knew the reality of that. But at the same time, like I told you, my, my, my desire to fit in with people was so strong and the way to do that just didn't fit with the expectations that I was confronted with at church, with the do's and don'ts. Most of the don'ts over here got me in over here. Does that make sense? And so what I developed during those teenage years was really a, a dual lifestyle, a kind of schizophrenic lifestyle. I had a Sunday morning life, and, and I was kind of sincere about that. I, I really believed in God. I, I believed in what we did there. I had all, again, I, I knew all the right things to say, but it did not go along with the rest of my life. When I taught Sunday school, Sunday mornings to the preschoolers, I usually did it with a hangover because of what I needed to do over here to fit in. And it became very, very frustrating. And there's really a couple of problems with, with the way I lived. One of it, I already said that I perceive Christianity as this set of rules of do's and don'ts. That was the first problem because what the Bible teaches couldn't be further from that. But in organized Christianity, we often, we often uh, get to the point where we minimize things to, to a set of do's and don'ts because we want to be black and white. We want to tell people you know, and, and, and put people in a certain category. And so we come up with all these rules. But what it left me with was sometimes a sense of accomplishment when I felt like I lived up to these rules. But most of the time, it left me with a sense of deep, deep guilt because I couldn't live up to these rules and at the same time be fulfilled over here in my social life and be accepted by the people I wanted to be accepted by. I was really not just trying, I was living two separate lives. And it became harder and harder to keep those separate and to keep, each, keep them from each other. And you know, when you... Um, when you live to, to please people and to be accepted, it can only lead to, to a, a lifestyle of deception and lies. Because for people to like you, you have to make things up. At least that was my perception. And so it was a very, very um, difficult time. It was, it was tearing at me. And it came to a, to a um, climax at some point. I was in the car with my older brother. We were driving somewhere. We had some of the same friends. And I was, I was never shy about telling people that I believed in God and that I went to church. It's just my life didn't, didn't really uh, mesh with that. But I had, we had this common friend that, that had asked me shortly before about why do you go to church? And I told him and you know, gave him the whole spiel that I had learned since I was little. And my brother must have had a conversation with this friend at some point. We were in the car, and I forgot the whole context of our conversation, but I remember my brother looking at me and saying, Christian, you are such a hypocrite. And I tell you, that stung so deeply because I knew it was true. Because I knew it was true. And it started, the, the pain that they brought started a process of reevaluating in my life. He says, I, you know, I, I realized he's right, I'm a hypocrite. 
but I don't want to be. What, what is going on in my life? Where have I gone off the, off the rail here? What needs to be fixed? What is going on? And I, I realized really that I was living a schizophrenic lifestyle. But I want you to not worry. We're okay today. Um, <laughs> but it really started to get me thinking. And, and it got so, so frustrating because I could never be myself in either setting because I had a sense of deception and guilt over here. And I had a sense of deception and guilt over here. I could never really be myself in either, in either setting. And the Bible verse during that time really spoke deeply to my heart and challenged me in this. And this verse comes from Revelation 3, verses 15 through 16. And this is a letter to a church at the time. And this is what, what he writes to this church. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You're neither hot nor cold. Because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That's what God said to this church. And for the first time I realized that the, the way I was living my life wasn't just extremely destructive and, and frustrating to me. It seemed like it was even more frustrating to God. Because what I was doing here on Sunday and here the rest of the week is not what he designed me for. It's not what he wanted from me. It's not what he planned for me. And it's not what he planned for you. The problem with it was that I felt I can't do this over here. I came to the point of realizing what seems to be expected over here to be a good Christian and to be acceptable to God and, and accepted in this, in this culture, this Christian community, I can't do. I can't live up to it. I want to badly, but I can't. I knew I could do this over here a lot easier, but I couldn't do it without deep, deep sense of guilt. And at that point, another verse became great encouragement to me. Realizing that I couldn't do it. I was, I was trying to figure out, how does this work? Because there were people in my life, specifically my father and, and a guy called Stefan. He was the guy that, that led a lot of the summer camps that I went to. And in both of them, there were others too, but those two were the closest to me. I saw the reality of living with Jesus. I saw a, a joy and a peace and a, a reality of really living with him fulfilled. And I also thought, that's what I want. And so I knew it could work. I just knew I couldn't do it. But I couldn't figure out what made it work for them and wouldn't make it work for me. And at that time, this verse was a great encouragement to me. It's in Romans 7, verses 18 to 19. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, the super Christian, wrote this to the church in, in Rome. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Do you catch that? Do it again. For I have the desire to do what, what is good. So I want to do these good things, but I can't do it. What I do want to do, I can't do. And the stuff I don't want to do, I keep doing. And I was like, yay, that's me. <laughs> Paul, of all people, had this problem. And I, seriously, I can't tell you the, 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 the comfort that was at the time to me. Now, it didn't solve my problem at the time. But at least I thought, 
All right, I'm not alone in this. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, had the same issue. And it kept me holding on a little bit and said, okay, let me pursue this a little more. And so during this time where all this came about, what my brother had confronted me with, this verse in Revelation about God not wanting me to be hot or cold. He'd rather have me be all cold than all hot. And then realizing Paul had the same problem. All came about at, 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 at about the same time frame. And another issue that happened in my life, which was another defining moment, I think, for me, was that my, the hope of a professional soccer career came crashing down on me. Shortly before, a few months earlier, I very unexpectedly all of a sudden got the opportunity to really pursue a professional soccer career. I got a tryout for the, the youth team of one of Germany's top pro teams and, and got accepted onto the team right away and was able to make contributions and, and got offered a professional contract. But before I could sign it, I had an injury that, that ended that, that made them say, no, 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 let's wait and see this. And I got the scar on my ankle that reminds me of it. And I can't tell you just the pain and the emptiness in me. In the midst of trying to find my identity spiritually, my, the identity that I had worked so hard to work for and create in, 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 this, in this soccer thing, all of a sudden was there and then not anymore. And I was crushed. I mean, I, there was nothing else there for me. It was complete emptiness. And I, I just said, God, I don't know what you're up to. But I know one thing. I can't do it anymore. I knew I couldn't live this double life anymore. I was tired of making decisions based on how my parents would react and how it would make them feel. I was tired of making decisions based on what the rest of the church thought of me. I was tired of living up to other people's expectations. I couldn't do it anymore. There was no strength left for it. And so I, because of the example that I saw in my father and in my friend Stefan, I said, okay, God, I'm going to give you one last chance to help me figure this out. I know you're real because I see it. But if I can't figure out how this is supposed to work between you and me. I know it works over here, but I can't figure out here. If, if, if we can't get this done, I'm going to walk away from you. I'm going to walk away knowing where that will lead, but I can't do it anymore. And so I gave him six, six months, literally. said, I'm going to go to this six-month Bible school in England. And if you can't help me figure this out, if you can't meet me where I'm at and tell me how this is supposed to work in my life, I'm done with you. But I was really sincere in that search. And so I went to England to a Bible school called Torchbearer Bible School. It was in a castle in the middle of Noah's awesome, beautiful place. And uh, with 250 other young people um, where we just studied God's word for six months. And it was very early on. It was, I think, the second week of school. Um, we had a guest lecturer called Billy Strachan from Scotland. That's my attempt at a Scottish accent. I know, horrible. have a German guy trying a Scottish accent. But Billy Strachan was an amazing teacher. He, uh, before he became a follower of Jesus, um, before he had his defining moment, he was a comedian on Scottish TV. He was hilarious. And then you throw in that accent, it was just killer. And, uh, but he was a great deep Bible teacher too. And he spoke on the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And very early on, um, he talked about 
And he asked us, do you guys know people in your life that, that have this unbelievable, vibrant and real and authentic relationship with Jesus that just seeps through in everything they do and say, and you're just wondering, what is it? And you want that and you just can't work it out. And I'm like, whoa, who told him? That's what I'm here for. And I was literally on the edge of my seat. And he just kept describing these people, you know, that, that you're around and, and all you want is you want to have that same relationship that they have with Jesus in your life. And, and do you know the secret to that? You know, I was sitting there like, no, tell me, tell me. And he says, I'm going to tell you after the coffee break. And so I was like, oh, come on, you're killing me here, Billy. So we had coffee break. We came back in and I was literally, I was just on the edge of my seat, said, please tell me. And I was asking, God, is this what I'm waiting to hear? And this is what Billy Strachan said. He said, if you know people like that, and they have this life with Jesus, this relationship that is so authentic and real, it's because they've done one thing, is they have really surrendered their life and every aspect of it to Jesus and have made him not just their savior, but Lord of their lives. And it was the first time in my life, by the way, this is my defining moment. It was the first time in my life that I realized what I had done when I was an eight-year-old and I went on my knees and I prayed to receive Jesus into my little heart and asked him for forgiveness of my sins, which was absolutely good and necessary. But all I had done at that time subconsciously was cash in a ticket to heaven. Cha-ching! All right, I'm saved. Got a ticket to heaven. All right, thanks, Jesus. I'll see you when I get there. And walked off and lived life. All I had done was accept Jesus' forgiveness and cleansing of my, of my sins. But I had not made him Lord of my life. I had not surrendered my relationships, my soccer dreams, my, my money, my, my romantic relationships, my free time to him. That was all mine. See, I had categorized God. He, he fit in really nicely. You know where he fit in? Great. Sunday mornings. <laughs> that was his time. This was God time. Sunday mornings. I'm all yours. Maybe Friday nights for youth group. But that was it. The rest of my life, I was in charge. I was at the steering wheel. And somehow I expected to have this great spiritual relationship and experience with Jesus when he wasn't part of my life except Sunday mornings and Friday nights. Billy Strachan um, taught through a Bible verse that day in class, and it's from Colossians 1.27. He said, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. He's talking about the mystery of living with Jesus, the mystery of the gospel, and he says, This is the mystery of it. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He said, It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What I love about this is that it doesn't say the mystery is this. What you can do for Jesus will lead to hope and glory. It says it is Christ in you accepting Jesus, the Holy Spirit, into your life, filling every area of your life and being in charge that will lead to glory. See, I had all my little list of things that I felt 
I was giving to God and he should be thankful for. I, after all, I did go Sunday mornings. I could sleep in. God, I give you Sunday mornings, please. Please be, be appreciative of that. Um, I, I even went to youth group. I even acknowledged that I believed in you when friends asked me about it. I mean, come on, I'm standing up for you here. You know, I wasn't really bad. I wasn't doing drugs and sleeping around. Come on, God, give me some credit here. See, for the first time... I realized I had put God in a box and it was a very little one in my life. A very little box that he fit in. I call that my rabbit foot approach to Christianity. And I think a lot of us do that. He, he, he's with us. He's ni- neat and nice little thing that we pull out when we need him. Little rabbit foot that we stroke. Say, oh, problem. Hey, Jesus. Hey, can you help me with this real quick? Thanks. See you Sunday. That, that was my approach to Christianity. And then Sunday, he got a little more of me. Rabbit foot theology. I want to illustrate that, actually. Let me um, draw you a little picture. You're going to get, get me all artsy today here. Um, I want to illustrate what I mean. Do you guys know these plates that you sometimes get, like in cafeterias, that have all these little compartments for all your healthy uh, aspects of your meal? You know those? So here's one of those plates. And by the way, there's a reason why I'm not on the arts team here at K2. So give me some grace. So here's a little compartment for your mashed potatoes. And here is the corn and beans, if your mom raised you right. And, uh, and then here's a little bigger one for, I don't know, fries. And then a big one for some meat. My wife is vegetarian, so I need this section badly. So... This represents our lives. This represents my life right now, maybe some of your lives. So I have all these compartments, and I'm thinking, okay, this is a big part. This was, man, soccer right here. Soccer was a big, important life, the part of my life. Probably the one I put the most effort and energy into. And then the next one, I have to admit, was probably girls. And then... Friends and family. All right. What other aspects are there of our lives? Uh, Finances. Finances is important, isn't it? And what else? I can't hear you. So, God. Oh, thank you. Yes, God. Let God. Yeah. Can we make that a little smaller? Right here. God. All right, there we go. There's God, and then there's a little room for, for fun in here. Huh? There you go. So that was my life. Right? There was all these other things, and ordered by priority. That's what I realized that day I was doing. And I was expecting to have this deep, meaningful relationship with Jesus, when all he got was this right there. See, and what I realized that day, is that this is what God wants. This, by the way, is not acceptable. If we say we want to follow Jesus, then this is not acceptable. This is what God wants. He wants to be that plate. And then there's all these aspects of life that take up a certain amount of time and priority and energy in our lives. Oops. Yeah, see, my art's... And God wants to be the plate. He is the one 
who wants to hold it all together. He's the one who wants control of our lives to say, okay, let's place soccer here. I'm writing upside down. Let's place family here and finances here and career here and so on. See, this is what God wants from us. He wants to be the one that wipes it clean and says, okay, now let me order the priorities for you. Let me tell you what's important. Let me tell you the plan that I have for you. And then let me into your life. Let my spirit fill you and lead you. Because that can only happen if we hand our control, all the, the controls to our life over to him. See, control, I think, is the big issue here. Being willing to, to give him control. From 1998 to 2000, my wife and I lived in Sweden. I was teaching at a Bible school there. And part of our, our work there was we had a high ropes course. So the biggest one in Sweden at the time. And we would have church groups and business people come through. And we would take them through this ropes course and try and teach them certain principles that would apply to their lives. Anybody ever been on a high ropes course? This one was 30 feet up in, in the trees with, with all kinds of scary things. So you would go on a balance beam that was only a couple of inches wide. and I mean, you, you have harness and carabiners and, and ropes and so on. And I can't tell you how many grown, strong men I saw up on that first platform crying like little children, not being able to just to, to go trust the equipment and step out and do it. And we would ask them, say, okay, now just, just hug the tree up there. Don't worry about it. You see that rope that's holding you? It says here on our equipment manual that this rope can hold two tons of weight. How much do you weigh? <laughs> Okay, not two tons. Okay, so you trust that this rope will catch you and hold you? Yeah. Okay, good. Now you got a carabiner here that's holding you here and up there. It says here that this carabiner can hold up to 3.5 tons of weight. What was your weight again? Oh, not that much. Okay, do you think this will hold up under you if you fall and catch you? Yeah. Why don't you do it? I don't want to. See, the problem was, we, we, sometimes we believe certain things. But we don't really trust until we step out. And that's what I was doing in my, in my Christian walk, in my spiritual life. I knew God existed. And with my intellect and with my mouth, I trusted him. But in action and in my life, I hadn't. And that day, after that class that Billy Strachan taught, I went on a long walk on the premises there. And they had a little, little um, pond that was kind of remote behind a few hills. And... And I went there and, and sat down and just had some alone time with Jesus. And for the first time, I was 20 years old. For the first time, I was really willing to say, okay, God, I want this. Apparently, what I've been missing is you actually want control of these things in my life. And I've, I haven't been willing to give them to you, maybe out of fear of what you would do with them. But I realize now that I've made a mess of all of this. And I want to give you control of my life. I want to do this. I, I'm not quite sure yet how that is going to work. And it, it's a process. But I want to give you control. I want you to take over. I want you in me working this out. And I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you after, you know, I was 20. So maybe 15 years of guilt-driven religion. 
after 15 years of, of expectation-driven action, after 15 years of that, I had a sense of freedom that I'd never had before. Now, to be honest with you, it's been a process and it's still a process. It's a daily process for me to consciously every morning say, God, today I want to live surrendered to you. And for me, what that means, I've made it a habit to tell Jesus every day, Jesus, I am willing to do anything, anytime, anywhere that you tell me to. I want to live surrendered to you today. And that day by that lake in the Lake District in England is really when my journey with Jesus began. I know that Jesus had already been on a journey with me and, and led me to that point. But it's at that point where we linked arms and where we started walking together. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been given a task that was so overwhelming that you just knew, you, I can't do this. And it sucked all the energy out of you. There was the, the fear of failure and the guilt that comes with that. And then maybe somebody came along who had the skills and the strength and energy to do what you were charged to do. And they said, come on, let me, let me take over here for you. Let me do this. We'll, we'll do this together, but let me handle this. I've been there a few times. Amen. That's the, the, the freedom that comes from that. It's tremendous. And that's exactly what, what Jesus is doing. He knows that neither you nor I can live up to the expectations that God has for us. We can't be perfect. Anybody be perfect here? I can't. But Jesus can. And that's why only him in you can satisfy God. The only way that you and I can please God is not by anything we do besides surrendering our lives to him. And let him take over. And like I said, it's still a daily effort. For me, it's a daily effort to say, God, I want your will in my marriage. I want your will in my parenting. I want your will in my finances. I want your will in my thought life. I want your will in the way I speak and act. But the more we do that the more room we give the Holy Spirit in our lives. The more room He has in our lives, the more evidence of Him intervening in your life and using you and working in and through you, you will see. And the more easy this will become. There's a verse in Romans 12 that to me describes that kind of life that God wants from us. It's Romans 12 verse 1. Well, pa Paul writes to the church in Rome. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your body as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. To offer your bodies, offer your lives as a living sacrifice to God. Now, sacrifice implies, the very word implies that it's hard. It's difficult. It's, it's against our human nature to give up control. Any other control freaks here besides me that find this difficult? But there is great freedom in handing those controls over to Jesus. And I, out of my experience, and I know many of your experiences, doing that will send you on the ride of your life and on the adventure that God created you to have with him. This verse started to make sense to me that God wants me to hand my life over to him as my act of worshiping him, of lifting him up, less of him, less of me, more of him. 
Music has always been an important part in my life. I love music. I, I love singing. I used to be in choirs and musicals. And music is one way that I love to express myself to God. And it's a way that, that God expresses himself to me and just blesses me and, 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 and speaks to me at times. And there was one song that became really, really important to me right during that time when I was in England and started to discover this, this relationship with Jesus. And the song is called All My Life. And one of the staff members there at the school wrote this song. And uh, I want to teach you this song. And maybe this song, the words to this will resonate a little bit with what you're at. It's become my life, my life theme song. I sing this under the shower. I sing this in the car. I sing this when I'm riding my bike just to remind myself of the kind of life that I want to live, surrendered to Jesus. And so maybe you find your, yourself here this morning at the point where I was as a 20-year-old, just frustrated and not understanding what God really wanted from me, how this, this relationship with him is supposed to work, then maybe the words to the song uh, will help you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never really made a commitment to following Jesus. You've never asked Jesus into your life. You've never asked him for forgiveness of your sins. And maybe this morning is the time for you to do that for the first time. And maybe you're, you are a follower of Jesus and you just know there's areas in your life that you're holding on to. That God is asking you, has been asking you, and is asking you this morning to let go of that death grip and let him take it. And let him do with it what he wants to do in your life. So I hope that, that the words to this song and that my story will encourage you to take that step.